0: Right now that it's 9 30 let's get started good morning and welcome back to sunday school it's good to see you all again happy new year we're continuing in our chronological study of the bible and you know we've been starting with creation and so that's where we continue last time before the christmas break we spoke about the expanded creation account of man man's creation In Genesis 2 where so many foundational doctrines find their origin as we saw a right understanding of man himself gender sexuality marriage work they all begin with Genesis 1 and 2 but these accounts do not fit at all with an evolutionary understanding of human origins so then rather than adjusting the Bible to fit man's theories man's modern theories We have to adjust or even reject man's theories in order to stand with the Bible. The Bible is worthy of it. It is God's complete, trustworthy word. And therefore, it must be our foundation for understanding the world and knowing what is true. But what are we talking about today? Well, before I get to that, let me muse for a little bit. God's creation is amazing, isn't it? The accounts of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are a vivid display of God's amazing power and his absolute command over everything in the universe. And what he's created is so beautiful, creative, awesome, diverse. Take the cardinal, for instance. Relatively common bird, but if you take the time to look at one closely, you see it's a work of art with a vibrant red and black feathers and its neon beak cardinals, and many other birds, they move swiftly and gracefully through the sky, pointing us to the beauty and creativity of God himself. Or take the lion. If you think of the lion, certain adjectives probably come to mind. Fierce, powerful, stately, regal. The lion is an impressive beast, has strong muscles, great speed, a deadly bite, terrifying roar, we regard this creature not only as beautiful, but also awesome. And it reminds us again, it points us to the awesome power and majesty of God. But as impressive as these creatures are in their own ways, there's probably no creature that shows forth the awesomeness of God as creator like the space slug. Yes, this gigantic creature so enormous, it could swallow a spaceship in one bite and with the slap of its tail, shake the ground for miles. Yet so mysterious, this creature is only found in deep space. What a testimony to the power, creativity, and mystery of God. Wait, what? what's that you say? The space slug is not a real creature? It's actually a made-up creature from the movie Star Wars? Oh, well, I do beg your pardon. I guess it... It would be silly to praise God's wisdom, creativity, and power by speaking about a made-up creature, wouldn't it? It'd be silly, too, for someone to inaccurately, but in detail, describe a real creature and praise God on the basis of those inaccurate details, wouldn't it? Yes, indeed it would. However, this is precisely what... Some suggest the Bible itself does in the book of Job. You see, near the end of the book of Job, we read descriptions of two creatures that, to many today, seem just plain mythical, or at least uh, extremely hyperbolic. What exactly are these creatures mentioned in the book of Job, called behemoth and leviathan? Were they real? Were they just myth? are they creatures that still exist in our world today or were they creatures that we don't know or see today because they have died out were they perhaps even dinosaurs or dinosaur-like creatures and if they were dinosaurs what are the implications for our understanding of origins so as you saw on the first slide our topic for today is dinosaurs and dragons I'll go back to that slide for just a second. Here's our, our, our agenda is we're going to first overview the topic of dinosaurs. We're going to examine these two passages in Job that I talked about. We're going to consider whether these are indeed a description of a real creature or could it possibly be something else. And then we're going to finish today by watching a video clip from Answers in Genesis related to the topic of dinosaurs and dragons. So let's pray before we go on further. Our great creator God, I thank you for the truth of your word and your glory displayed in creation. Even God in some creatures that don't exist today. And yet a record of these creatures has been provided for us even in your word. And how astounding, God, that you created such creatures. And what a testimony to how we are to be posturing ourselves before you. We cannot take a great place. But you deserve the great place. God, I pray that the people would see that more today. you to equip me to speak, help the people understand and listen. In Jesus' name. Man. All right, let's talk in general about dinosaurs. Dinosaurs really once lived on the earth. Since the early 1800s, people have found fossil evidence of dinosaur existence. The name dinosaur itself, it was coined around 1850, and it comes from the Greek, and it means terrible lizard. Not every dinosaur was fearsome and terrible, but that's what the name means, terrible lizard. Now, there are many modern scientific theories related to dinosaurs that are anti-biblical. But let's not misunderstand. Dinosaurs themselves are not anti-biblical. They're not the enemy. Don't feel like, oh, I need to. De- de- if I'm going to stand with the Bible, I need to deny dinosaurs. No, you don't. Dinosaurs are fine. And there's plenty of evidence for them, and they don't contradict the Bible. As Christians, we should not be afraid to admit that dinosaurs once existed. In fact, we should give God glory and stand in awe of him for how he made dinosaurs and other great creatures that have gone extinct. But dinosaurs do need to be rightly understood in light of biblical truth, and that's one of the things we're trying to accomplish today. Now, truly, our culture is fascinated with dinosaurs, and I think I don't have to tell you that. Just think of the various movies marketed today or in the recent past that feature dinosaurs. Kids especially seem to be attracted to reading about or watching shows about dinosaurs. Now, why this cultural fascination? Part of the reason surely has to be dinosaur size, right? You and I often gape in awe at big things, giant buildings, giant machines, even giant sandwiches. So, understandably, we are amazed at giant creatures. I mean, there are some decently big animals around today, but many dinosaurs were from what we can tell, much bigger. From what paleontologists conjecture based on discovered dinosaur bones, the largest of the dinosaurs were the sauropods. And I've given you a little picture of that. Sauropods are those herbivores with extremely long necks and tails. One of the longest sauropods was 115 feet long. And that's longer than the biggest creature we have today, the blue whale. The blue whale is about 100 feet long. Uh, the longest sauropod was 115 feet long. The heaviest sauropod appears to have been the Brachiosaurus at about 27 tons or 54,000 pounds. Now, that's a lot of weight. For reference, the average adult elephant is about five and a half tons or 11,000 pounds. So just imagine five times the weight of an elephant and you've got something like the Brachiosaurus. It's a big beast, big heavy beast. But not all dinosaurs are extremely large. The Hypsilophodon, for instance, is about six feet long and only a foot and a half tall. It weighed about 125 pounds. Not a huge dinosaur, but substantial. Other dinosaurs are even smaller. Remember this. This is something that Ancystogenesis often repeats. The average size of a dinosaur, both in what it could grow to be and what it would be yeah, starting off, the average size of the dinosaur was the size of a sheep. So don't think, oh, dinosaurs, uh, all these towering creatures. Yeah, some of them got pretty big. But dinosaurs themselves weren't necessarily so. They were about the size of a sheep on average. Now, I've quoted a bunch of statistics for you. But remember, these are estimates from what we can tell based on dinosaur bones. Paleontologists, scientists, they do revise these estimates, but it gives us a little bit of an idea of these amazing creatures and why we're fascinated with them. These dinosaurs, especially big dinosaurs, they capture our imaginations just from their size. But that's not the only reason, I think. Big or small, dinosaurs also fascinate us because they've apparently all disappeared. They no longer exist from a time from before today. A time lost to us now. Dinosaurs, then, are a mystery. Many scientists have devoted their lives to uncovering the mystery. When did these strange creatures live? What were they like? And what happened to them? Now, since they appear to be ancient creatures, dinosaurs invariably become part of a discussion surrounding origins, the very beginning of life on Earth. Dinosaurs, according to secular scientists today, were some of the most ancient creatures on Earth, But if we ask, just from a biblical perspective, when did dinosaurs live? When did they first appear? It's pretty simple. Go back to the Genesis 1 account, six days of creation. On which day did dinosaurs appear? These are these great land lizards. It would have to be on day six, when all the other land animals were made. And when man was made. Technically, a dinosaur is a land creature. We sometimes might refer to a marine dinosaur, but that's actually inaccurate. Uh, There were marine creatures from the dinosaur that lived alongside dinosaurs, but technically dinosaurs are land creatures, and a certain kind of land creature, but we won't get back. Anyway, so day six, land dinosaurs come on day six, same time as man, same time as the other land creatures, which means that humans lived along in the same, same world as dinosaurs. This is what you get from a plain reading of Genesis 1. But if you suggest as much to an evolutionist today, he will probably laugh at you. We know, he would say. Humans came much, much later than dinosaurs. Dinosaurs appeared about 231 million years ago and died out around 66 million years ago. The first humans didn't evolve from apes until about 2.3 million years ago. There's a big gap there. And this is clear in the fossil record, there is no way humans lived with dinosaurs. This is what modern evolutionists might say. But hopefully we know enough by now, even from our study in Genesis 1 and 2, to reject the evolutionary timeline and accept what God gives us in Genesis 1. Just from the creation account of Genesis 1 and 2, we would know that dinosaurs did indeed exist on the earth when they appeared, day six. And that man lived in the same world as dinosaurs. But is there anything else in the Bible that would suggest or prove that humans lived at the same time as dinosaurs? And I would say there is. This is now where we want to turn to the book of Job. Please open your Bibles, go to the book of Job, Job and look at chapter 40. Job 40. We're going to be looking at verses 15 to 24, but before we do that, let's get a little context of this passage. Joe, this elderly man, or this older man, after suffering calamity after calamity in his life for no good reason that he can see, he expresses to his friends that he wished he could talk to God and ask God why all this tragedy has come upon him. Job increasingly becomes convinced that his suffering is unjustified. So he wants to defend himself before God and even ask God for an explanation. God, why is this happening to me? I can't see any reason why this would happen. In chapter 38 of Job, Job gets his wish. God appears. But rather than explaining to Job what God is doing, God gives Job a series of rebukes in the form of questions. Questions about creation, mostly. Through these questions, God reminds Job of God's great power, God's wisdom, and God's right to do exactly as God wishes without explaining himself to anyone. In short, God is humbling Job, putting Job, helping Job go back to his rightful place, his rightful posture before God. Now glance for a moment, if you're in chapter 40, glance for a moment at chapter 39. We won't read this chapter, but... In this chapter, God asks Job a series of questions related to different animals. We won't discuss the questions, but if you scan the passage, you'll see the various animals mentioned. Verse 1, we have the mountain goats. Verse 1, also the deer. Verse 5, the wild donkey. Verse 9, the wild ox. Verse 13, the ostrich, or it could be the stork or the peacock. Verse 19, we have the horse. Verse 20, the locust. Verse 26, the hawk. Verse 27, the eagle. These are all real creatures, are they not? And the descriptions given to us, the brief descriptions given to us in this passage, they do accurately describe these animals and their behavior. If they did not, God's words would make no sense to Job. He's asking Job to consider these various creatures. If God were to say something inaccurate about these creatures, that would defeat God's purpose in bringing them up to Job. So this is right before our chapter, but let's now look at chapter forty. In the beginning of chapter forty, God commands Job to give an answer. Hey Job, you know so much? You're such a you're such a great being. Why don't you tell me about certain things? He, he asks Job to answer, but then he resumes his interrogation of Job, starting in verse fifteen, and this is where we want to start reading. Look at Job forty verses fifteen. I think I wrote twenty two there, but I'm going to read down to verse twenty four. Job forty verse fifteen. God says, "Behold now, Behemoth, which I made as well as you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold now, his strength is is in his loins, or his strength in his loins, and his power in the muscles of his belly. He bends his tail like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs are like bars of iron. He is the first of the ways of God." Let his maker bring near his sword. Surely the mountains bring him food, and all the beasts of the field play there. Under the lotus plants he lies down, in the covert of the reeds and the marsh. The lotus plants cover him with shade. The willows of the brook surround him. If a river rages, he is not alarmed. He is confident, though the Jordan rushes to his mouth. Can anyone capture him when he is on watch? With barbs. Can anyone pierce his nose? All right, we've read our passage. As is our practice our, with using our inductive Bible study method, let's start by making just plain observations of the text. Notice what genre we are looking at here. This is poetry, Hebrew poetry. You see a lot of the Hebrew parallelism that's so characteristic of that poetry. But does poetry mean non-factual or untrue? No, no. Poetry is still part of the Bible. The Bible is inerrant. Poetry is also accurate. It doesn't contain errors. But with poetry, we should understand we, we are going to expect more figurative language. Things like simile and metaphor. They're still going to be indicating true things. They're still going to be accurate, but we want to be ready for that more figurative language. Now, this passage is about a creature that God calls behemoth. And notice a number of things about this creature. <clears throat> notice what behemoth eats. eats grass. eats plants. God says that specifically. What sense do we get of this creature's size? Well, he's big. This is a large creature. And look at the descriptions that emphasize the creature's size. He's called the first or the chief of the ways of God. It says the mountains bring him food, which seems to indicate he eats a lot. I mean, he needs a whole mountain to bring him food. If a river rages, he's not alarmed. He's confident that the Jordan rushes to his mouth. That means he's able to move through the water, even against a rushing river. He bends his tail like a cedar. It says the lotus plants cover him with shade and the willows of the brook surround him. Now, this is interesting. Verse 22 is translated a little differently depending on your Bible translation. New American Standard says lotus plants, that ESV says lotus trees. NIV says lotuses. King James Version says shady trees. What are we talking about? We're talking about A small aquatic plant, bush, tree, what are we talking about? Well, this is a rare word in Hebrew. It appears only one time in the Bible. But I think we need to understand this term more on the tree side. Why do I say that? Well, the lotus plant as we know it today is essentially just a flowering lily pad. That's not going to give you much shade. Unless you've got a whole lot of them and you're completely underwater. Moreover, verse 22 as poetry with is is featuring some Hebrew parallelism. It says, just as the lotus plants cover this creature and give him shade, so the willows surround him and provide shade. Now, willows are trees. So, to keep that parallelism, it would make sense that whatever the lotus plant is, it's also talking about a tree, a larger plant. Bottom line, notice, many plants, many trees, are involved in giving this one creature shade not just one tree not like the lotus plant or willow tree no we got a whole bunch that's pointing to the great size of this creature how is the creature's tail described notice it is like a cedar cedars a tree and notice some other descriptions that emphasize the creature's strength his strength is in his loins god says his power is in the muscles of his belly His bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs are like bars of iron. For river rages, he's not alarmed. And then we have that rhetorical question towards the end. Can anyone capture him? Expected answer is no. Notice also the location descriptions. They are consistent with one another in this passage. What kind of environment does this creature seem to live in? Some kind of swampy land with rivers and trees. This creature likes to be near the water and likes plants. Notice also passage says, who is able to approach this creature with the sword? Says, let his maker bring near the sword. This isn't something for anyone else to just try and tackle. This is only something for his maker, a beast for his maker to deal with. Right, so we've made these observations. Let's go to our second step of our method now and interpret. And we wanna first take a step back. And ask the question, what is the point of this passage? And that we're not here merely to learn about an ancient creature. God didn't bring this up to Job and say, let me tell you about this one creature. So that you and future generations will know about it. Yeah, we do learn, but that's not the main point of this passage. Why does God bring up this creature to Job? God wants Job to understand the limit of his own power and understanding compared to God. God has unlimited power and understanding. He created this amazing and large creature that Job cannot handle, but God can handle. This is to help Job remember who he is and remember who God is. Job needs to see his smallness and God's bigness. God is using behemoth as a, as a means to prove that point. But the question that's more In line with our our main topic today is, what exactly is Behemoth? What is this animal? Certainly this animal is big, strong, and familiar to Job. There'd be no point in God bringing up an animal that Job had no idea what God was talking about. Consider Behemoth. You know, there's one creature you don't really know about, but he's really big and he's really strong. That doesn't make any sense. Job had to know about this creature. Otherwise, God has no point in bringing it up. So we know he's big, strong, from Major Joe. But can we say more? Can we identify this animal specifically? Two most commonly identified animals with this creature by biblical interpreters. So you'll see this in study Bibles. You'll see this in commentaries. Are the elephant and the hippo? They say Behemoth is the elephant, or Behemoth is the hippo. One of these creatures. Oh. The elephant and hippo do fit with some of the details of this passage. Certainly they are large, they are strong, and they live in environments near watery marshes. But not all the details of this passage fit with those creatures. Especially one big one. Which detail doesn't fit with the elephant or the hippo? The tail, right? It says he bends his tail like a cedar. Now this tail is a big problem. By the way, this picture on the, on your screen, that's, those are cedar trees. The, this animal is supposed to bend his tail, have a tail, move his tail like a cedar. Now obviously as a tree, cedars don't really move. They might sway with the wind. So this is talking about the size of that creature's tail. The behemoth has a tail like a cedar. Now let's look at the tails of the elephant and hippo. Mm-hmm. Not very reminiscent of the cedar trees that we just looked at. These don't look like big or strong tails. Now, someone might say, well, maybe tail here is actually supposed to describe an elephant's trunk and not its tail. Well, that's an interesting thought, but the the word here, the Hebrew word for tail, there's no linguistic evidence inside or outside the Bible that suggests that this word might be used for something other than tail. It pretty much just means tail. It wouldn't be used for a trunk, though an elephant's trunk does have some strength to it. Now, someone else might say, well, maybe when God described the tail being like a cedar, he meant the branches of the cedar tree and not the trunk. You know, the branches are a little smaller. Well, first of all, many of the cedar tree's branches are actually quite thick. The branches are pretty big. Second of all, how would it fit God's purpose to draw attention to the behemoth's small branch or even twig-like tail? I mean, the whole point of the passage, as I try to emphasize, is that no one can control behemoth except God because the behemoth is so big and powerful. So why would God in the middle of that presentation say, oh, by the way, think about the behemoth's tail. You know know that not very strong, not very big tail? That would not fit with God's purpose. God is trying to show that this creature is way beyond Job, even in his tail. Because of their tails, neither the elephant or the hippo could be the behemoth. The behemoth has to be a different creature. But what other animal do we know that actually existed and had a big tail? that was strong like a cedar tree? Well, a sauropod dinosaur. This is a creature that fits all of the descriptions of the passage. He has a tail like a cedar. He has that power in his loins. He has bones like tombs of bronze. He would live in an environment described in this passage. So probably behemoth was a dinosaur like one of these sauropods. Now, that's a pretty big deal, because that means that Job is an example of a human living at the same time as a giant creature that no longer exists today, even the same times as dinosaurs. So, contrary to the claims of evolutionists today, humans did live alongside these giant creatures. At one time, humans and dinosaurs lived together. But it's not just behemoth. Because God's not done. Look at chapter 41. God wants to use another great creature to reinforce Job's smallness and God's bigness. And that is the sea creature known as Leviathan. Now, we the, the description of Leviathan is quite extensive. and We don't have time to read the entire passage. But look at chapter 41. And I just want to highlight certain details about this second creature to you. Look at Job 41 verses 1 and 2. God continues speaking, and he says to Job, Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook, or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose, or pierce his jaw with a hook? I got a number of rhetorical questions from God again. What is God emphasizing to Job about this creature? You can't handle Leviathan, Job. You can't capture him. You can't subdue him. Now skip down to verses 8 to 10. Uh, Verse 8 of chapter 41, God says, lay your hand on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Behold, your expectation is false. Will you be laid low even at the sight of him? No one is so fierce that he dares to arouse him. Who then is he that can stand before me? Oh, wow. What is God now emphasizing to Job? Leviathan is a fierce creature that no one can overcome. But God is even more powerful. God is even less overcome a bull. He made Leviathan, the one that you can't handle, the one that you just look at him and you get terrified. It makes you think you can stand before God. And something unique about Leviathan, though, other than his strength and his ferocity, jump down to verses 18 to 22 in Job 41. Very intriguing descriptions here, starting in verse 18. God says, His sneezes flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. Out of his mouth go burning torches, sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils smoke goes forth, as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals, and a flame goes forth from his mouth. In his neck lodges strength, and dismay leaps before him. So what strange ability, based on these verses, does the Leviathan appear to have? What would you say? It's the ability to breathe fire. It's some sort of fire ability. And before someone says, wait, 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 this is poetry, this is just figurative, it can't really breathe fire, well, please pay attention to how much emphasis in these Versus is put on this flame ability, these animals heat and flames. Eight to ten lines about that. I mean, yeah, we can be figurative, but you can't explain all this away. This is emphatic that this animal has some fire ability. Smoke, fire, light, all associated with this animal, repeatedly. This is this is way more than a metaphor for ferocity. The description is too detailed, too elongated, and too emphatic. Leviathan apparently has the ability to breathe fire. Now, there's other parts of this passage that go on to describe Leviathan in an even more amazing way. He's said to be so armored that his skin cannot be penetrated by darts and arrows. He's so large and powerful that just when he moves, he stirs up the sea. Leviathan is a massive creature that struck fear into the hearts of men. And this creature himself feared nothing. But what creature is like this today? Is any creature that we know of that's still around, does it fit the descriptions of this passage? As some interpreters suggest this animal might be a crocodile because, you know, crocodiles got, got scales. It's a little bit armor-like. It's kind of a fierce animal, a little big. Or it may be a great white shark. That's one of the, the scariest creatures we have in the ocean but compare the great white shark or crocodile to this description and it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit all the way. Present day creatures don't line up with what we read here in Job. Leviathan must be a giant, fire-breathing sea creature. That's key. This is not some lake or river creature. This is something in the ocean. But unknown to us today. Some kind of scaly Dinosaur-like sea creature from a time gone by. Job knew this creature. In fact, Job lived at the same time as this creature. That's why God can mention it to Job. Remember, it makes no point for God to bring up a creature that Job doesn't know. By the way, this is not the only time Leviathan is mentioned in the Bible. There are three other references to Leviathan in the Old Testament, One is Psalm 104, verse 26. You can investigate these more a little bit later on if you have time. Psalm 104, 26 mentions how God, as part of his creation, he made Leviathan to play in the sea while human ships go passing by. Leviathan existing at the same time as humans. And Psalm 74, verses 13 to 14. uh, Leviathan is used in a metaphorical way there. Asaph, the writer, recounts how God, in a display of his unmatched power, at one time destroyed various sea monsters, including Leviathan, and gave him up as food to various wilderness creatures. Actually, I'm not sure whether it's metaphorical. I would have to look at that passage a little bit more. It actually could be literal. God could be describing the decimation of this animal or of one particular particular Leviathan that was notable in history. Or he might be talking about how... God devastated the nations around Israel, and he's using Leviathan as a metaphor for that. But just because Leviathan is used as a metaphor, don't misunderstand it. it doesn't mean that he's mythical. No, the Bible uses real creatures as metaphors all the time. Lions, eagles, etc. But it's interesting that Leviathan is mentioned, because that means if you're going to use a metaphor, you've got to use something that people know. The people knew Leviathan. Asaph knew Leviathan, and he expected his audience to One other reference appears in Isaiah 27, verse 1. And this one definitely is metaphorical, but it's interesting the way the metaphor is used. Isaiah 27, verse 1 refers to Leviathan as a serpent or a sea dragon. Both of those terms appear in the Nazvi translation around Leviathan. It uses a number of descriptors of Leviathan, but Leviathan, serpent, and sea dragon. And it is used metaphorically in that passage as to describe the mighty enemy of Israel that God will slay. Which is appropriate, right? From what we read in Job, who can stand against Leviathan? No human, but God can. Only God can take down Leviathan, which when we speak metaphorically about the enemies of God, they may stand even as Leviathan, but God will slay them. God has total power. So, what's the point? Leviathan was not only known to Job, but by others in the Bible. And these statements, the other statements in the Bible, they fit with the description given of Leviathan in Job. So, an even greater point, the Bible gives us good reason to say that humans and dinosaurs, as well as other great creatures that have gone extinct, humans lived at the same time in the world as those creatures. They lived alongside each other. Now, when I say alongside, don't misunderstand. I don't mean that humans are regularly hanging out with dinosaurs, I mean, after the fall, or at least after the flood, dinosaurs probably acted toward humans like most other animals do, with hostility or with fear. So it's not like dinosaurs and humans were best buds. Now, you may be wondering, if dinosaurs lived at the same time as some humans of the Bible, what happened to the dinosaurs? Why don't we see any of them around today? The Bible doesn't give us an answer to that question. However, we're going to watch a video now that will shed some light on that question and also tie up many of the ideas that I presented to you this morning. So here's where we can cue up the video. This clip from Answers in Genesis is about 11 minutes long. It's going to talk specifically about legends and stories that have to do with dinosaurs and dragons. So let's watch the video now. Do we have the video? Uh, it's uh, I believe it's called Dinosaurs and Dragon Legends. It should be in the should be in the email I sent for this class. If you need to stream it, they do have it available. If you just Google "Dinosaur and Dragon Legends" video, you should be able to find it online. Also, while you're doing that, I'll at least uh, throw up on one other picture. This is. Answers in Genesis, artistic concept of what Leviathan may have looked like. We have some descriptions in the passage. Of course, we can't say specifically what it looked like, but here's an aquatic sea creature, scaly, reptile-like creature that's able to breathe fire. Anyways, we'll hear more about Leviathan in just a second.
1: Here in England, there's a popular legend. Just outside an ancient city lived a fire-breathing dragon. In order to pacify the dragon and satisfy its hunger, every day the people of the city gave the monster two sheep. When the sheep failed to satisfy the dragon, human sacrifices were required. Lots were drawn to determine the victim. One day, the lot fell to the daughter of the king himself. The king offered all his wealth to purchase a substitute, to no avail. And so the young maiden, dressed as a bride, was led away to the marsh where the dragon lived. There was a soldier, a follower of Christ, named George, who happened by and saw the condemned girl. When the dragon attacked, George outfought the mighty beast. He then asked the maiden for her garter and bound it around the scaly neck of the dragon, after which the princess was able to lead it like a lamb. They went into the city. The grateful king offered the soldier up to half his kingdom, but the man refused. He simply asked the people to consider the Christian faith. The people rejoiced and were baptized. That's the legend of St. George, the patron saint of England, and the dragon. A myth, surely an allegory filled with symbolism. But in the center of that myth is this strange creature. Where did such a creature come from? Dragon legends are found in many cultures and traditions all around the world. Dragons abound in Chinese children's stories, Babylonian legends, and Aztec tales. In Japan, dragons are generally considered friendly creatures. Children read stories of great dragon keepers and heroic dragon riders. Medieval European legends feature dragons who lived in wild, remote regions, guarding great treasures. Images of dragons are preserved on family crests and national shields. But what could have inspired all these stories? Is the dragon simply the creation of inventive minds? Or could dragon stories be based in reality, possibly related to dinosaurs or other amazing reptiles that we find in the fossil record? Many scientists contend that dinosaurs died off over 60 million years before humans came to be. The possibility that humans and dinosaurs ever coexisted is unthinkable to them. But what does the Bible say? Genesis 1 tells us that God made the animals of the land, air, and sea in the same week that he created human beings. In this case, humans would have been alive on the earth at the same time as these creatures. Dinosaur fossils, believed to be laid down during Noah's flood, suggest that dinosaurs were certainly alive at the time of Noah, only a few thousand years ago. And since the Bible tells us that Noah took pairs of every kind of land animal on board the ark, he certainly brought dinosaurs with him as well. This is consistent with recent discoveries of soft tissue and red blood vessels preserved in dinosaur fossils, A find that suggests dinosaur bones are not nearly as old as many scientists assume. One of Noah's descendants is Job, and in the book of Job we find two mighty creatures probably the largest animal on land and the fiercest animal at sea. Behold now, behemoth, God says to Job as recorded in chapter 40, which I made along with you. He eats grass like an ox. His strength is in his loins and his power is in the muscles of his belly. He moves his tail like a cedar. Some Bible footnotes suggest that this may be a reference to an elephant or hippopotamus. But ask yourself. Does the tail of an elephant or hippo look anything like a swaying cedar tree? Look instead at this depiction of a sauropod dinosaur. Doesn't this resemble the behemoth described in Job?
2: There's one possible place where the Bible describes a dinosaur, and it would be the behemoth described by God to Job in the book of Job. And God's talking to Job about a specific animal, and he goes into a great amount of detail to describe this animal. In fact, it's one of the most detailed descriptions of an animal in the entire Bible. He's got a description there, several verses describing his attributes, his characters. When you compare those descriptions with living organisms, it doesn't fit. But it does fit the description of a sauropod dinosaur. The brontosaurus-type dinosaur, the apatosaurus dinosaur. It's big. Everything about it is enormous and strong. And as you read that, you can picture in your mind immediately one of the great sauropod dinosaurs. I suspect that the animal described in Job chapter 40, called behemoth, is in fact a dinosaur that lived in the days of Job. The book of Job not
1: only describes a behemoth, It also tells of another creature, this one called
2: a Leviathan. The the animal given the name Leviathan is described as a sea creature, fast-moving, covered with scales, uh, apparently can come out of the water to interact with humans at the surface of the water, has teeth, terrible roundabout, and so on. And most amazingly, it's described as breathing fire. Out
1: of his mouth go burning lamps, and sparks of fire leap out. Out of his nostrils goeth smoke, as out of a seething pot or cauldron. His breath kindleth coals and a flame goeth out
2: of his mouth. There's a lot of mystery with Oviathan. It's a most extraordinary creature.
1: So if dinosaurs lived alongside humans, and Noah even brought pairs of young dinosaurs with him on the ark, what happened to them? Where did they all go?
2: When I find fossils of dinosaurs in the record, I also find with them other organisms, including certain kinds of plants. I suspect those are the plants dinosaurs actually ate. If that's the case, then dinosaurs ate a different type of plant than we find commonly today. They ate a gymnospermous type of plant that is uncommon in the present. So the dinosaurs had food, but it was limited. And so I suspect the numbers of dinosaurs were kept to a very small number following the flood. I suspect there were few dinosaurs about, making it possible, and this is what I believe happened to them ultimately, for humans to pick them off, to kill them. Perhaps humans killed predatory dinosaurs because they were afraid of them or because they wanted to show off.
1: You start with a biblical perspective, the text and other evidence suggest that dinosaurs and other incredible reptiles of the sea and air once lived alongside people at the time of creation, during the flood, and for centuries thereafter, so it is hardly surprising that the world would be filled with legends of heroes like St. George and their encounters with mighty beasts.
0: Right, that's good. Let's get back, right, let's get back here. So you saw many things that we looked at together from the passages emphasized in that video, but also a little bit of new information. Hopefully you got the main point. If we start with the Bible and what it presents to us about the great land and sea creatures, the presence of legends about dinosaurs, it should not surprise us at all. Neither should there rock drawings or other ancient human-made artifacts that depict dragon-like creatures. It's because humans and dragons, i.e. dinosaurs, i.e. the large creatures of the Bible, they lived in the same world because they were created at the same time. That sixth twenty-four-hour day of creation. And let me bring up two objections before we open it up for more questions in the class. Uh, number one Couldn't the behemoth and Leviathan just be made up? Mythical creatures that Job had heard of that he knew about but weren't real that God simply used to illustrate God's power. Some people do make this argument, but hopefully you've seen, especially with the way that I've structured the lesson today, that the answer must be no. It would make no sense for God to pretend that a creature was real when it was not. It either makes God deceptive or it just makes God incompetent. God is trying to emphasize his power as displayed over the creatures that God made. That would make no sense if God brought up a creature that he didn't make. He said, by the way, consider Behemoth, this great creature, you can't even handle him. But Job would be like, but he's not even real. So what's your point, God? That'd be ridiculous. It'd be as ridiculous and deceptive as bringing up space slugs as an example of God's might. It doesn't mean anything if it's not real. Or if it's just a great exaggeration, then again, we still have problems because Job can be like, wait, 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 wait. You're saying these things about Leviathan, but Leviathan's not actually like that. So again, God, what's your point? No, these have to be accurate descriptions of real creatures. Yes, poetic, but still accurate. And so Behemoth and Leviathan must have been real, and they lived around the time of Job. Second objection is, if humans lived alongside dinosaurs, how come we don't see any examples in the fossil record of human bones alongside dinosaur bones? Now this is actually a great and thorough response from Answers to Genesis at their website. Go to answersingenesis.org and you look up the article, why don't we find human and dinosaur, dinosaur fossils together? Why don't we find human and dinosaur fossils together? That's the title of the article. Get a really great answer from answers to Genesis, but let me give you just a brief summary of that answer. First, let's remember, if the Bible says something, the Bible asserts something, and we don't find evidence of that thing in the world around us, remember, that actually doesn't really matter too much, because what does Paul say? May God be found true, that every man be found alive. Our faith in the authority of the word of God is never dependent on finding corroborating evidence in other sources of the world. God's word alone is trustworthy. It's what it means to believe in the word of God. If you say, I believe God's word, but then if you don't find the evidence in the world, you don't believe it. Do you really believe God's word? Second, it does not follow that not finding fossils together means that those two types of creatures did not live together. This is one of those arguments from silence. You have to be really leery of such arguments because there may be many explanations as to why certain things didn't come to be that we just don't know about, or that have not been considered. Consider one creature to illustrate this point. The coelacanth. The coelacanth was once thought to be an ancient fish that had become extinct millions of years ago. Uh, This is because the fossils of this fish were found below and at the same layer as dinosaur bones, but never higher meaning this fish certainly lived at the same time as dinosaurs, and perhaps before, but did they live afterwards? No fossils of this fish were ever found with humans, so it was assumed that this fish had gone extinct before humans evolved. However, in 1938, a strange thing happened. A population of living coelacanth fish were found in the Indian Ocean. And they continue to exist today, right alongside humans. Moral of the story, just because you don't find bones of two different organisms together does not mean they didn't live at the same time. There are other explanations as to why they didn't end up together. Remember this maxim. One man said this well about archaeology, and it applies to science, archaeology, and many other things. Absence of evidence does not mean evidence of absence. Absence of evidence does not mean evidence of absence. That just means if you don't find something, it doesn't mean it didn't exist. It just means you didn't find it. There may be many, many good reasons why you didn't find it. And when it comes to animals and dinosaurs, they just didn't happen to be in the same place. They didn't put themselves in the same place where, where they could be fossilized together. That's probably because uh, dinosaurs are afraid of humans and humans are afraid of dinosaurs. They didn't hang out. So they did not they weren't buried and fossilized together. And again, we can come up with many other explanations for why why those bones don't show up together. Anyways, other questions. Do you have any other questions about what you've heard today or about dinosaurs or about these passages in Job? Now, one question that might have occurred to your mind, we'll talk more about this later, is if dinosaurs did live at the same time as humans and Noah was supposed to bring dinosaurs on the Ark. How did he possibly fit all the dinosaurs? Well, there are a number of ways to answer that question or a number of parts to the answer, rather. First of all, we're talking about dinosaur kinds. He didn't necessarily bring every species of dinosaur and estimate is that there are only 50 or so dinosaur kinds. So we're not talking a huge number of animals. And also Noah had no reason to bring the largest versions of each kind on the Ark. He probably brought the juveniles only uh, with that safe space. But that would give them the longest reproductive cycle. Don't bring the really old, big animals because they won't have as much chance to reproduce once they get off the ark. Bring the young animals so that they can have lots of dinosaur babies, etc. So that and other reasons is not, or for those reasons and others, it's no problem for Noah to bring dinosaurs on the ark. But dinosaurs ended up going extinct like many other creatures did. Dinosaurs are not extinct, not extinct. Uh, unique in going extinct we have many other creatures even in our own lifetimes that have gone extinct every year we have species going extinct that's just because changing conditions in our world now the activity of humans and other things so dinosaurs are not not unique in that way especially big creatures big creatures have a hard time surviving because they're so obvious they're so threatening and man just has a tendency to kill big creatures so when you think about elephants or rhinoceroses, their populations keep on dwindling because they're big and because they have certain things that humans value. And it's probably similar to what happened with dinosaurs. Let me bring a few other questions to your mind before we close today. I don't want you to miss some other questions that go beyond merely the informational or apologetic aspect of dinosaurs. Let me first pose this question to you for you to consider for yourself. God used the behemoth and the Leviathan to make a point to Job. But we need to understand the same point. Consider your own concept of God. Is your God the God of the Bible? That is, is he as big as the God of the Bible? Is your God big enough to uphold you through trials? Is your God big enough to keep all his promises to you? Is your God big enough to not to need to explain himself to you or bend to your way to, of thinking? How big do you make yourself out to be in comparison to God? Does God need to remind you about the dinosaurs and dragons he made? Behemoth, Leviathan? God created, and he could easily subdue these creatures. What about you? Will you then stand pridefully before your same maker as Job was tending towards doing? Learn the lesson that God was teaching Job through Behemoth and Leviathan. Humble yourself before God. Remember, God says many times throughout the scriptures, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Dinosaurs actually are a lesson in that. Dinosaurs are a lesson in humility, the humility that we are to have towards God. Do you have that kind of humility? Another question. Have you been proactive in teaching your kids about dinosaurs from a biblical perspective? Kids love to learn about dinosaurs, but consider the material that's available to children today. I mean, most of it is just completely evolutionary. No no consideration of the Bible. Why not take that opportunity to inform your children, even from an early age, their real information about dinosaurs? Don't just leave it to the world to educate them, because the world is not only going to give inaccurate information, but they will not give the glory to God that God deserves. God deserves glory for dinosaurs, and we want to make sure our kids understand that. So, is that something that you've taken advantage of? And finally, consider... How might even dinosaurs be used as an avenue for the gospel in your conversations? You say, what? Dinosaurs in the gospel? Well, think about it. There are two, at least two avenues that you can use when it comes to dinosaurs in the gospel. You can talk about how dinosaurs existed and they don't anymore. What happened to the dinosaurs? Well, they died off. Oh, these great big creatures, it's such a shame we don't have dinosaurs today. Yeah, you know what? You're right. Do you know why that happened? Because of sin. Because of the fall. God didn't design for, originally designed for dinosaurs to just die out. But this is what happened because Adam and Eve rebelled against God. This is because man has rebelled against his creator. The world is cursed. Death has entered into the world. And even great creatures like dinosaurs have perished because of it. But dinosaurs aren't the only ones who are going to perish. So will each one of us, which is why we need to be made right with our creator. That's one avenue you can take or you can just go the same route that God took with Job. Yeah, dinosaurs are amazing. Yeah, I love to learn about dinosaurs. But you know what God said to Job in the Bible about dinosaurs and other big creatures? He reminded him that Job can't handle those creatures. How much more the maker of those creatures? And what about you? Have you learned the lesson that Job needed to learn? Have you humbled yourself before God? So dinosaurs are not just interesting and informational. They actually point us, I believe, to God. They give glory to God and they show us the humility that we ought to act. God. So this was a lesson all about dinosaurs, but that's it for this week. If you have other questions or other things you'd like to learn about dinosaurs, definitely email me or go to the Answers in Genesis website. They have lots of information. Next week, we're going to be talking more about the fossil record as we consider a much larger issue. That is the age of the earth. There are plenty of sweet brethren that we have in Christ who don't believe in evolution, will nonetheless believe that the earth is quite old, even millions of years old. Is that legitimate? Is that helpful? We'll talk a little bit more about that next week. Let's close in prayer. Our Lord God, we thank you for how you did display your glory in creating dinosaurs and these dragon-like creatures. But God, I pray that we would learn the lesson of Job, that we would be humbled, because we couldn't handle dinosaurs. Yeah, They were scary. They were fearsome. They were, they were so great and large. But how much more their creator? Lord, you are our creator. You are the one with whom we have to do, but there's no way we can stand before you. You can make and break dinosaurs. You can make and break us. But Lord God, you've made it so through Jesus Christ. We don't have to be broken, but we can be saved. So I pray that each person's trust would be in Christ and that each person would be approaching you humbly, not as one who deserves, but as one who desperately asks. For your kindness because you are gracious to those who seek you humbly let it pray that you bless the rest of the service for calvary and bless those who have heard the lesson today in jesus name amen